0: He breaks down the normal instruments of war that Israel had. He speaks peace to the nations. He will rule over Israel, and not just Israel, but to the ends of the earth. And in later verses, this king then brings judgment with him and glory and restoration for God's people. This is a prophecy of the messianic king that matches Jesus' triumphal entry entirely. I'm Kyle Grant, and I'm the lead pastor at Grace Bible Church. You know, biblical preaching is one of the highest priorities of our ministry, and I'm so thankful that you've chosen to listen. If you have any questions about our ministry or would like to know more about Christ, feel free to connect with us at www.gracebibleelkhart.com. Thank you again for spending these moments with us. And I pray that God transforms you by His grace through the Bible. I have a question for you this morning as we jump into Mark chapter 11. What is the grandest, most memorable entrance you've ever witnessed? Maybe certain things begin to come to your mind Maybe if you've ever been to a professional sports game before, they make some pretty grand entrances, right? As they call in the starting lineups and fire shoots out from the stadium and fireworks go off and the whole light darkens and then brightens back up. It's pretty grand entrances or maybe, I don't know, maybe some of you have been to like a WWE match and seen wrestlers come in and make a pretty grand entrance. Um, Maybe some of you are like me, and the grandest entrance you can think of, at least for husbands, is the day you watched your wife come down the aisle. Um, good, good amen there, Rick. <laughs> um, I will say for mine, it's, it's the grandest entrance I have ever witnessed in my life. But I'll say this, and I'll explain why I say this. It could have been grander. Okay? Now, you're probably like, whoa, whoa, whoa. But I'll tell you, I'll explain why. Because there was a change of expectations a little bit as the entrance came, we're in our home church, and it's beautiful day. Ton, and all of you know who've, who've been to weddings or you've been married, you know the emotions that are just running through that morning. And so everybody, we, we got set We had a wonderful pianist who who was playing as the groomsmen and myself and the pastor entered and we stand kind of like right here at the center aisle and look back. We had doors at the back of our center aisle in our home church in Pennsylvania. They're closed, right? And, um, you know, music is playing. I see the faces of all of loved ones and friends and people in our church, our families. And, you know, all of a sudden the music changes a little bit and the bridesmaids begin to come down. And all of the emotions are just building, and you've maybe realized this about me. I'm a little bit of a crier, so I'm already. I'm just. I'm a down and out. Um, and finally, right after the last bridesmaid comes in, the 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 maid of honor, doors close again, and I'm standing there. I'm looking down at my shoes because I'm just. I'm trying to pull myself together, <laughs> right? And I look back. And I wait. I'll <laughs> and i wait, and i wait some more, because in the rehearsal, what was supposed to happen was the last bridegroom was supposed to come down, and when my wife was going to enter and come down the aisle, there was supposed to be a change in the music. It was the only recorded music. She wanted um, Rhapsody on a theme of Paganini. My wife's a big musical nerd, <laughs> okay, so <laughs> and so is Laura, apparently. Um <laughs> So that was supposed to be recorded and supposed to play, and it's this beautiful theme as the doors just swing open, right, and she comes down. Well, as I'm waiting, the music does not come on, and I look up to the balcony where our sound room was, kind of like it is here at Grace, and I see our sound guy, who's a very chill person normally, standing there going like This and trying to get our pianist's attention to play some music because he could not get the music going. So I'm standing there, and no lie, it feels like a decade. (laughs) Standing there, waiting for my wife to come down the aisle. And I look in the people's faces, and I can tell, like, I know most people know us, but they're like, did did he get left at the altar? (laughs) Oh, no. What's happening? But finally, finally... The music kicked on and the door swing open and the rest was just fabulous. It was amazing. Um, And the grandest entrance I've ever seen. But without, you know, the perfection, right, that was going on, there was a big change of expectations. Um, Now, grand entrances, when we typically think of them, usually they're very self-focused, right, especially when we talk about, right, pro sports, their grand entrances is very self-focused. It's very grand. It's all about me, right grand entrances are grand why well when you have an important person in an important moment and an exhilarating moment correct so you would expect the most important person ever to exist in the most important moment of their life to have an incredible grand entrance but where we are today in Mark chapter 11 we see an entrance by the most important ever to most important person ever to exist that is grand but it's subtle it's humble it's very exhilarating but it's a selfless entrance there's these change of expectations that go on that really do make it one of the most memorable entrances. It is the grand entrance of the king who comes to be sacrificed in his royal city. So you're in Mark chapter 11. I want to, to catch you up a little bit, because not all of you are teens, and so you haven't been with me on Wednesday nights. And uh, where we've been in Mark, uh, when, we, when we jump into the gospel in chapter 11, we are in chapter 11, entering the third phase, the, third, uh, the final third of Mark's gospel. So what's happened up to this point is chapters 1 through 7, we have seen Jesus' authority clearly established, his messianic authority clearly established um, through different cycles of teaching and miracles, And Mark just hits it, boom, 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 one right after the other, and begins to crank up the dial as you get to chapter 8. In chapter 8 through 10, this middle third of the gospel, we get a clarification of Jesus' authority and a clarification of Jesus' true disciples, his true servants. Again, through more teaching and through some confrontation that begins to happen, even between Jesus and his own disciples. Jesus clarifies and defines what his authoritative mission is as Messiah. And it clashes with certain expectations that his disciples and others had. By the time we finish chapter 10, even if you turn back there, what you'll see is at the very end, you have two episodes, one where we just finish with James and John Um, who are vying for authority. And Jesus has to clarify some things for them and clarify some things about what servant leadership really is. And we end chapter 10 with an episode talking about blind Bartimaeus, one who came to Jesus, was rejected by the crowd, but Jesus in his humble servanthood Goes to him and heals Bartimaeus. Jesus practices what he teaches. He is the true servant, leader, the authoritative Messiah to save us. And Mark's full third of the gospel is showing how that works. The fulfillment of Jesus' ministry, he enters Jerusalem, as we'll see today, and he makes all of these acts of judgment, acts of authority causes quite a stir. All authoritative in what he does. And he has some confrontations with other authoritative leaders clarifying his authority. Then you have the passion narrative in chapters 14 and 15. Jesus is anointed for sacrifice. He's tried and he's led to his death on a cross. And in one chapter, then we get the resurrection. And Mark is just boom, 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 boom all the way through this. And we see in Mark's gospel the themes of Jesus' true messiahship and the theme of his servanthood just beautifully woven together in Mark. Jesus is a servant messiah. We see this theme woven into even the passages that we're going to look at today as well. He is the messiah who comes to deliver his people from themselves. Not from what maybe they were expecting, the rulers over them, the oppressors over them, the empires that were in this world. Jesus isn't conquering in that way, at least not yet. Jesus comes to deliver his people from themselves. So it's not too often that you get an Easter text not at Easter, right? Um, It's kind of like when you celebrate Christmas in July. It's a little weird, but it's a good kind of weird. It gives you a different perspective maybe on the holiday a little bit. Um, So although it's not Easter, we're going to be looking at the triumphal entry this morning. Although it's not Palm Sunday, it's okay that we look at the triumphal entry, right? So Mark chapter 11, look with me at verse 1. I'm going to read down through verse 11, and I'll make maybe a few comments just along the way, and I'll get into our main idea for this morning. So Mark chapter 11, verse 1. Now, when they, that's Jesus, the disciples, drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples. Um, Bethany is a place where Jesus' friends lived, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Um, and at this point, we are entering the final week of Jesus' life. This is Sunday. They come and Bethany and Bethphage, they were very small surrounding villages right outside of Jerusalem. So, because we're at Passover, there are thousands of pilgrims and people who have come to celebrate Passover in Jerusalem. So, it was befitting for Jesus and his disciples to not, there was no room in the city at this point, so they stay in Bethany. And what you end up seeing here is they stay in Bethany. They take a trip into Jerusalem, and they come out at the end of the day and come back to Bethany through the night, and then take another trip out to Jerusalem in the day. And that's kind of the pattern that you see take place here. So that's why Mark mentions Bethphage and Bethany here at the Mount of Olives, which is no insignificant place, especially when we talk in terms of eschatology and where Jesus will return and a lot that will happen at the end of the age dealing with the Mount of Olives. So Jesus sent two of his disciples in verse two and said to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Probably a reasonable question, right? Say, the Lord has need of it and we'll send it back here immediately. So Jesus has this purpose of borrowing this colt, and it's, it's predictive of Jesus what is going to happen when he sends the disciples to get this colt. When it says colt here, it is, a, it is a young full of a donkey that's being referred to. Colt in English language can refer to the, the young of a horse or a donkey in a way. Um, when it comes to this text, and it'll be explained later, we're talking about the young... Full of a donkey, a colt here. So, Jesus has this purpose of borrowing the colt and then sending it back, and that's what his disciples were supposed to answer. Now, there's something curious about this here. On, he says it's a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Why is that important? Um, we'll see this in a little bit as well, but it has the indication that there's a, there's a purity about this colt, this donkey. No one has ever sat on it. It's almost like it's being reserved for a very specific purpose. No one has ever sat on it before. Um, we we'll continue on, verse 4. And they went away, so disciples go away, they found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And guess what? Some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said. And they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it. And he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road. And others spread their leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. And he left for the day. Looking back at verse 7. it, It was very normal for pilgrims to travel to Jerusalem for feasts. I've already told you that. And we get some very significant details here from Mark. Mark is very quick and he's very accurate with his details that he gives because Mark is all about brevity. He's just trying to get you through all this quickly, immediately, immediately, immediately. So when he gives you details, you need to pay attention to them details like the fact that it was a cult, this whole thing about their cloaks being put on it so Jesus could sit and cloaks being laid out into the street, the whole idea of these branches. And maybe, sorry to burst your bubble, it wasn't necessarily all palm branches. I know we celebrate Palm Sunday and we have kids, you know, wave palm branches and things like that, but it was kind of all kinds of branches. Now there were palm branches in there, but it wasn't just palm branches. But the fact that they put all of these out For Jesus, welcome him in with them. This crowd of people and what they say, what Mark records them saying, are all significant, important details for what's going on. And then in verse 11, Jesus goes to the temple almost as if to survey his dominion. What's going to take place in this next week? the people he is going to confront, the powers at be that he is going to agitate, the place where he is going to die, and then leaves. Why does Jesus leave? Well, it's dark and the temple wasn't busy. And Jesus is going to come back if you read on. Jesus is going to come back and the first thing that he does the next day is go right back to the temple and he cleanses it. He overturns the tables of the money changers. He's, he drives out all those selling sacrificial animals to purify the temple. An act of authority. So we read this passage, and it's probably very familiar to you all, right? We usually read it around Palm Sunday, Easter, right? every time. And there's lots of fun things that we do about this. But my question for you this morning, when we're, you know, backed away from all of the sentimental things that we do on Palm Sunday and things like that, is this, our really main question I guess we want to approach this morning. How does Jesus's triumphal entry impact you and me? Great, wonderful. What does it have to do with me? I want to put forward to you this morning that the triumphal entry is not just a cute Easter story to learn. It's not just something to teach your children. It's not just something to have a wonderful verse to display in your house or to, you know, make some palm branches and maybe reenact the scene a little bit. It's not just a story to learn It is something that impacts us greatly and challenges us greatly. And what I want to do today is I want to show you two things in this passage, or two things that this passage indicates to us, and then how it impacts us today. So two things that this passage indicates to us, and then how those two things impact us today. So, in order to do that, In order to show you two things that this passage indicates to us, I need to maybe introduce you to a prophet, and I need to go back to the psalm that we read this morning in our call to worship text. Because the first thing that we're going to see that this passage indicates to us is that Jesus is the rightful, promised, messianic king. That is exactly who he is. And Mark does not shy about telling us that. But in order to see it, for those of us who may not have a a biblical background or for those of us who aren't familiar with the Old Testament, we need to go back there to see why that's the case. So I want you to turn with me to Zechariah chapter 9. And maybe you knew this is where we're going, but Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9. I want to give you a little bit of the background of Zechariah as a prophet. He is a prophet living at the time when the children of Israel had come back from exile in Babylon, Persia. So at this time, the children of Israel, they are working to rebuild the temple, build up the walls, and essentially rebuild their culture and their lives, Zechariah says it himself in chapter 4, verse 10, that it was a time of small things where it felt like everything about this people was insignificant. Where they were a small chunk in the vast world. Nobody essentially cared about them. They are rebuilding their lives piece by piece. There's much despair, just maybe even trying to get through the day, build some sort of comfortable life, life out of the wreckage and the ruin. They were heavily taxed by Persia, and they're just rebuilding their lives day by day. This is the people that Zechariah speaks to. Um, I don't know how many of you have, have met refugees before, um, that's the kind of character trait that's the kind of image that we need to have for the people zechariah speaking to we have lots of refugees today Um, we think about the war in ukraine we think about many other places in our world that have seen refugees come in that maybe we don't have a good reference point for but i want you to put yourself in these people's shoes because Zechariah writes to encourage this people with what the Lord is doing, even in the small things, even in the insignificant times. So Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, is when the branch, the Davidic king, enters the scene. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, if you'll read it along with me, it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, shout aloud. O oh, daughter of Jerusalem. Zion is the, the mountain, the hill that the city of Jerusalem sat on. And Jerusalem is, is the, the, the wonderful city of David here. Behold. Look. Pay attention. Look out. Your king is coming to you. Righteous. And having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Zechariah's prophecy here is, is of the coming king, this messianic deliverer, this king of the line of David who was to come, is based on actually past processions of certain of Israel's kings and leaders. So when Zechariah, the people he's speaking to, they hear this, it hyperlinks for them back to other places like 1 Kings chapter 1 verse 32 through 48 where King Solomon in his coronation rides on David's mule to music and rejoicing. It goes back to 2 Kings chapter 9, verses 1 through 13, where Jehu is anointed as king with people spreading their garments at his feet. It goes back, if you know a little bit at all, about Jewish history, this intertestamental time. 1 Maccabees chapter 13, Simon Maccabeus, when he enters Jerusalem, accompanied by the waving of palm branches and music and praise after defeating the Seleucids. When Zechariah says this, there's the hyperlink there. And notice how Zechariah describes this king. The king is arriving to Jerusalem, to Zion. He is righteous. It could mean he is just or he has righteousness. Having salvation is he. He holds salvation. He brings it with him. Salvation from what? The enemies of God's people, the ones oppressing them, the ones that God has promised to bring to himself and to judge. He has salvation with him. He breaks down, and when you you continue looking on, even in verse 10 and 11, actually we'll go and read that, it says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off. It talks about this king basically getting, taking away all of the instruments of war of who? The people of Israel, Ephraim, Jerusalem. All of those instruments of war will be cut off, they will be taken away, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. It's a wonderful passage. He breaks down the normal instruments of war that Israel had. He speaks peace to the nations. He will rule over Israel and not just Israel but to the ends of the earth. And in later verses, this king then brings judgment with him and glory and restoration for God's people. This is a prophecy of the messianic king that matches Jesus' triumphal entry entirely. And think about that for a second. Hundreds of years before Jesus is even born, the way that he would approach Jerusalem is written down. And happens exactly as how it's said. From multiple authors over hundreds of years, prophecies fulfilled in Jesus. I hope you understand that the Bible is a reliable book. Prophecies from hundreds of years before, thousands of years before Jesus is born are fulfilled in him. We can't tell coherent stories that happened a couple of years apart in our own lives. Right, we get the information wrong, even when it's coming to us. The Bible is specific, and fulfills these prophecies. And what Jesus does in Mark chapter eleven—that is something astounding. And I hope it doesn't just pass you by. You needed to know about this prophet. You needed to know about this prophecy. But I want you to turn back to the passage that we read this morning, Psalm one eighteen, and look with me at verse nineteen. Because I told you we needed to go back here. Psalm 118, verse 19. This section of this psalm, from how I understand it, was sung when pilgrims would enter the temple. Okay. Right? The psalms are songs that would be sung. And so when people, pilgrims, would enter the temple, this portion of the psalm would be sung because this portion of the psalm talks about um, going from outside the temple gates into the temple with praise to God all along the way. So let's read it again in case you missed it this morning. Psalm 118, verse 19, Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord this is the gate of the Lord the righteous shall enter through it I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone this is the Lord's doing it is marvelous in our eyes this is the day that the Lord has made let us rejoice and be glad in it save us we pray O Lord now that phrase, save us, gets lost in our English translation. The Hebrew for that phrase, save us, is hoshi transliterated into Greek as hosanna. You see, when these people in Mark chapter 11, when they see Jesus entering and the throngs of people come around him, when they say hosanna, they're saying, save us. Save us. This is what the people are shouting as he enters. The same phrase is shouted to Jesus and other people even coming to Jerusalem. The rest of the song leads us to the temple and the sacrifice of the Lord. The idea in verse 27 about um, buying the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. Place it there. Get it ready to be sacrificed. And imagine the things that are going through Christ's mind as this psalm is reiterated back to him as he enters the city of his death, of his sacrifice. The cornerstone that the builders rejected has become, sorry, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, the chief stone, the foundation. Jesus enters Jerusalem, makes it to the temple, but there is no celebration there or sacrifice. It's dead. It's dark. No one's there. So, He leaves, perhaps foreshadowing that maybe Jesus even Himself will be the sacrifice, the offering to the Lord. What's beautiful is these two passages, both Zechariah 9, Psalm 118, Mark explicitly hyperlinks them in, his, in chapter 11. Um, and if you're like, well, he didn't explicitly say, you can go to Matthew and Luke's parallels accounts of the triumphal entry, and they point you back to these two passages explicitly. So these two passages mixed with the themes and other passages throughout the Old Testament point directly to Jesus' entry to Jerusalem. They say together that Jesus is the one to truly save us by his entry as king into Jerusalem. They blend together to show us that Jesus really is the Messiah. He's the one prophesied from long ago. He's the one that this is accurately being fulfilled in. He is God's deliverer. He is the anointed one. The authors of these other passages didn't write them specifically for Jesus, Only God could inspire these writings and prophecies to be fulfilled hundreds of years later in Jesus' entry to Jerusalem. Because in Jesus, God's Messiah has fulfilled his grand entrance on his way to bring peace to God's people and peace to the nations. And that leads us to our second point. I told you this passage indicates for us that Jesus truly is the, the rightful, promised Messianic King. It's hard to get by that in Mark. But the second thing I think that this indicates for us is that Jesus came to bring true peace. Jesus came to bring true peace. You say, why do you say that? Well, how does Jesus bring true peace? Maybe a better question is, what really is true peace? When you begin to think about it. Um... In ancient history, those of you who are history buffs at all, um, there was a time called the Pax Romana, Latin for the peace of Rome. How did Rome achieve that peace? Was it through loving kindness? Was it through a wonderful winning personality? It was peace... Brought on through oppression, through threats, through fear, through conquering, through death. And we all know, because we've grown up with bullies, we all know, or maybe you were the bully. (laughs) You've seen that a bully can bring peace to a group of people. Where they're not messing with each other or messing with the bully. But that peace is achieved through threats, through manipulation, through violence. That is not true peace. The peace that Jesus brings with him is a peace of humility. Is a peace that he brings because he is a servant. It is a peace that he wins, not through threats, not through violence, not through the overwhelming conquering of another people group. It's through his very death and sacrifice. Jesus comes to Jerusalem ready to bring peace through his death. He comes humbly, Point of a donkey. He didn't come like some nation's ruler with this entire parade behind him on the most magnificent carriage of horses with trumpet fanfare and everybody looking on and bowing to him. Jesus came riding on the foal of a donkey with people, yes, shouting Hosanna and shouting blessed be the one who comes in the name of the Lord but who would one not even one week later, reject him. There's no bowing that takes place. There is no true worship that takes place. Because these people had wrong expectations for their Messiah. They thought he was going to come and bring the kind of peace that Rome had done and topple Rome itself. But Jesus brings a peace that they needed He brings a peace that is not a peace between them and another nation but between God's people and God Himself. Paul says it this way in Colossians chapter 1 verses 19 through 22. For in Jesus all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through Him to reconcile, it means to make peace to Himself all things whether on earth Or in heaven, making peace by the the conquering of armies, by a winsome personality, by threats and manipulation, by making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. That's the true peace that Jesus brings. It's not manipulation. It's not violence. He suffered for you and for me when he entered Jerusalem that day, riding on a donkey. He knew what he was going to go through. He knew that he would come up against all kinds of opposition of these religious leaders who had a sense of authority about themselves, who basically, in a sense, made themselves their own kings and would never accept somebody else stepping in to take their place. The peace that Jesus brings is through humility, through sacrifice, through the payment of his blood for you and for me. Jesus' mission was to offer you and me true peace, restoration and joy in the face of darkness. And this is why it is a triumphal entry. This is why Jesus enters Jerusalem triumphantly because the king has come to make peace. Problem is, is that these people thought it was a different kind of peace. A lesser peace. So, conclusion for us this morning. How does this impact us? Wonderful Easter story from long ago that we celebrate once a year. And if you're probably like me, sometimes it just comes and goes. You don't really settle into it and think much about it. What Jesus' triumphal entry does as it indicates to us that he is the the promised, the rightful messianic king, and that he comes to bring true peace, what it does for you and for me is it forces us into a decision. We are forced to respond to God's true king who brings peace. Two things are true from the triumphal entry. Jesus is absolutely the messianic king. He is God's deliverer and peacemaker and his very existence throws us into a call to action. The second thing, Jesus came to Jerusalem to bring peace to you and me with his death. That is what he offers. The triumphal entry of Jesus brings with it a choice to either bow to or stand against King Jesus. That's what this passage does. This is not just some cute Easter story. This is life and death. This is the, 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 your spiritual condition of being at peace with God or being hostile against him. Because when Jesus entered Jerusalem that day as the rightful king, he gave every single person in this world a choice to bow to him or to reject and stand against him. And you and I are in the place of the people who lined the streets that day. We can bow to King Jesus and accept the wonderful peace that he brings through faith in him. Mark, as he continues on through his gospel, will show us exactly how Jesus brings that peace during the final week of his life. You can bow to the king, choose to obey his word, and follow him faithfully, serving his kingdom. Or, you can rebel against that king. You can reject very peace with God in favor of, of your own way, in favor of rejecting Jesus as king because you would rather be king or queen. The religious leaders in Israel certainly did this. They actually, they plot to kill Jesus after this here. You can see it. Mark chapter 11, verse 18, the chief priests and the scribes heard it, or sorry, Yeah, heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him. Specifically, in reference to everything that Jesus has done, but including the authority pushing that he was doing in cleansing the temple. They didn't want Jesus as their king. Even those who lined the streets would be screaming, Crucify him in just a few short days. And this is a choice we all must make. And our faith is the indicator of that choice. It's like a a crest or an insignia that tells us if we are truly one who is in submission and faith to Christ. Alyssa and I have been watching a show called Merlin recently. It goes through the young wizard Merlin and his life, you know, the Knights of Camelot, Knights of the Round Table, all those things. And you can always tell a Knight of Camelot because they all wear the same thing. They have the crest of Camelot, of Arthur Pendragon, on it. And they're wearing wonderful red capes and chain mail and all of these things. And they have crests and insignia that indicate to you who they are. Our faith is the indicator of our choice whether we are submitted to King Jesus or we have rejected Him. Our faith will be revealed in the same way that Mark portrays inadequate faith in the coming days of Jesus. Because there of these people, there is Occasionally an inadequate faith because there's a faith in the wrong Messiah. A faith that is self-centered and misdirected. People making Jesus to be a Messiah of their own making. Like the people blessing Jesus' entry to Jerusalem thinking that he's going to throw off Roman rule. And essentially what they would get from Jesus. That's the Messiah that they wanted. Or like the disciples, wanting the best position in Jesus' new kingdom. We may profess faith in Jesus because of what status it could bring us. Or maybe just because it makes us feel good about ourselves. Better than others, we have the truth. Or it's purely insurance to get on Jesus' good side professing Christ to maybe make life smoother, professing Christ to feel righteous or that you've made the right decisions in life. True faith sees only Jesus as good and worthy of following because he is truly king according to God's plan. And we follow our king in the same humility and self-sacrifice that he exhibited for us. That's faith. Mark shows us as well a faith that's wavering or fickle, like Peter denying Jesus or the others running away, like the crowds turning on Jesus just a few short days later, a faith that as soon as things started to turn sour, they left and abandoned him. Now we know because of God's grace, Peter and these other disciples came back, but not everybody in Jerusalem that day came back. The appropriate response to King Jesus is repentance, humility, and servanthood. Bowing to a good, peace-bringing, and humble king. It's a willingness to stay faithful even in the darkest of times because he is a king worthy of it. The triumphal entry presents you and I with a choice. Will you bow to King Jesus in your life or will you stand against him? Let's pray.